0: What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are there any real distinctions between them, or are those just cultural constructs? It seems that even broaching the subject of gender distinction has become taboo. What are we to make of the rapidly shifting gender and sexual ethics of our culture? Are our faith convictions hate speech if they differ with the cultural norms of premarital sex, cohabitation before or instead of marriage? divorce, homosexual marriage, and gender transitioning? Is the Bible archaic and simply out of touch with reality? Has Christianity become too impractical for the real world? What does the Bible say about all this anyways? What does it say about masculinity and femininity? And how does that play out in marriage, singleness, parenting, life, and in ministry? God's Word reveals a good God whose ways are good. That teaches us that men and women are equal and unique. In fact, the gospel frees us to celebrate these distinctions, revealing the way in which we have been designed to flourish.
1: Word after. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I thank you, Lord, that you care about the next generation. Lord, you love them. You. You know uh, what's going to happen in their lives. And, Father, the things we do now uh, impact them for eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would never struggle again to have people serving. God, I pray you call some of my brothers and sisters in this room to get involved, Lord, and to care, uh, that we would care for one another as a church family. Uh, So, God, may it be from you. May it not be from me. May it not be a guilt thing. But Lord, may it be a, a prompting of your spirit. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, we're going to talk today about moms and dads. And uh, I thought I'd just share with you how I became a dad. So uh, my wife and I... Not the whole story. Uh, you got you guys. Oh man, this is gonna be fun. Uh, so when my wife was uh, ready to pop, I guess you could say, when she was uh, right at the end, uh, we were waiting and we were in pins and needles. I was at a church meeting that night, and I got the call. My wife was her water broke, and uh, she's going into labor. And, you know, in that minute, if you guys in the room have ever been, had that experience, it's like, y- your mind doesn't know what to do. Oh, what did we plan? What are we supposed to do? And you're a little thrown. And uh, anyway, rushed home, picked her up, went to the hospital, you know, and we're like, you know, it's TV version, you know, labor, right? We're going to have a baby in like 30 minutes. Well, no, actually, you're in horrible pain, but we're going to send you back home. Okay. Uh, and so my wife had to just suffer through the night. Get up the next morning, we went in again. She just, long, long labor, 28 hours uh, for my, my poor wife. She's here. Where are you, sweetie? She's over there. <laughs> She's a trooper. Probably the worst moment for her was when I complained about how hungry I was. Uh, <laughs> keep your mouth shut, Chris. But I'll never forget the moment uh, when our son was born. Uh, it's just—it's an incredible experience when you just see this precious life come into the world. And he was big. Uh, he was nine pounds, something. Big Ben. Uh, there he was. I was kind of like, whoa, he's huge. And, but I was just overcome by how beautiful he was. And it was just such a rush of emotions. And uh, so they rushed my, my wife off to get, you know repaired, I guess. Uh, It's probably not a really sensitive way to say it. I'm sorry. Um, And so she was, uh, they were taking care of her because it was really hard on her body. And uh, I got to take Ben out and show the family. And it was like 1 a.m. So my family was exhausted. They celebrated, you know, it's a boy. And then they, they just left. And then they had to take Ben away to the EQ, so Ben left. And my my wife wasn't there, and I was just standing there in the middle of the hallway. And I was like, Well, now what do I do? I guess I'll go pay for the parking. <laughs> so I, I did. I went and paid for parking. But I had that moment where I was like, now now what? I mean, what do I what do I do with this child, this this being who has entered our world. Maybe you've had that experience as a parent. What do do I do? They didn't give us a a manual for this this thing. What is my role in this child's life? What is my role as a parent? Uh, And today we're going to get even more specific with that. What is my role? What, What is the role God has given us as mothers and fathers? Mothers and fathers, distinctly. So we're going to talk about this in a very distinctive uh, way this morning. We're looking at the high calling of motherhood first. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about moms in our passage. Uh, We're going to talk about the qualities of a godly mother. And then we're going to move on and we're going to talk about fatherhood with the dads. Uh, That's how the, the message flows in Thessalonians as well. So this will not be a sermon that can possibly cover all the aspects of mothering and fathering. We are not going to try to locate the ways that God has designed the motherly role, or we're going to try to locate how they're distinct, how mothers and fathers are distinct in their calling and in their role. And I just want to uh, walk you through a couple things. It's my hope and prayer that in our gathering, all of us may be encouraged, even if you're not a mom or a dad here this morning. I pray that God's Word would encourage you. So if you're single here, if you're married without kids, married with kids... You have older kids you have left the house. The topic of mother and fatherhood can be beneficial to all. Uh, We all have parents ourselves, and so that's that's one way that it is beneficial. If you're young, I want you to listen as I try to paint you a biblical picture of the kind of mother or father that you can be one day. If you're here and you're experiencing the pain of infertility or childlessness, I want you to first of all know that your pain and your longing are not unknown to God. He sees you. The Bible is no stranger to infertile couples. There are many, many godly women in the scriptures we read of who long for children. And for those of us who have children, may we be sensitive to those among us who haven't been able to have that blessing that they so want. May we be really careful with our mouths, too, and just be there for each other. It's my prayer that you will find hope, though, as we, as we talk about this, and that you'll see that you can, in many ways, mother and fo- be a father or mother figure to many. Um, one other thing I wanted to share is... Um, You'll, you'll, when we preach God's word, we make, we make pretty general pronouncements on things. There's always exceptions. And so if you're sitting, listening, going, oh man, am I the exception to that or not? Um, come talk to us. Come talk to us. We'd love to help you work through some of these issues that come up in your mind. But I also would caution you about just immediately putting yourself in the exception category. We're going to talk about the rule. There are exceptions, but, but, but really think that through as we go. Uh, if you're a single mom here today, I want you to also receive some encouragement and some wisdom for how you can raise your kids well in the middle of your adversity. So, let's deal with moms. Um, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us a wonderful contrast in 1 Thessalonians 2 of a mother and a father. He talks about the way he was a mother or a father to this church. So as I was preparing to speak on this topic, I was looking for a passage like this, something where we could see a portrait of both put side by side so we can see how maybe they're similar, but how they're also different. How are they different? How has God designed fathers and mothers uniquely? The Thessalonian church uh, was a church that Paul had planted. It was a church that he was very thankful for. He was rejoicing in the fact that they were persevering and they had accepted the word of God when he came to them. They were not really like the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had all kinds of garbage issues they were dealing with. And the Thessalonians had some, but mostly they needed encouragement. They needed encouragement about life after death. They were facing persecution. They needed reassurance from their pastor, from their apostle who had planted the church. You can read about Paul's journey to Thessalonica, the city, in Acts chapter 17. In this letter, Paul is going to talk about how he did come to encourage them. He wrote this letter to encourage them, to reassure them, and we might even say to mother them a little bit. Paul writes this letter. He is concerned to remind them of how sincere he was toward them. Here's what he says. Look at verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying, look, when we came to you guys, we were sincere with you. We didn't have ill motives. We loved you. And look, we could have made demands of you because we have authority. But, verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, or literally our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. You hear the maternal language in this passage. You become very dear to us. We were gentle with you, nursing you like a mother, affectionately desirous of you. We shared the gospel with you. This is a motherly approach that Paul took. Barbara Hughes, in her uh, book, Disciplines of a Godly Woman... She tells a fascinating article that she had read in the Washington Post. It was an interview that they had done with radical feminist icon Jermaine Greer. Greer uh, was well known in the 20th century for her very extreme feminism. But in this interview, Greer admits that in her later years, she became desperate to have a child, She became desperate to have a child. Um, She spoke to young women in her book, a 1970s book called The Female Eunuch, okay? This gives you an idea of, like, her position, The Female Eunuch. And she counseled women for years, uh, and in this book, she counseled them to view motherhood as a handicap and pregnancy as an illness, She urged women to be deliberately promiscuous and to be careful not to conceive children. However, in her interview with the Washington Post, Greer spoke of a surprising maternal experience she had with her friend's young daughter, Ruby. Here's what she says about this little girl. Ruby lit up my life in a way that nobody, certainly no lover, has ever done. I was not prepared for the incandescent sensuousness of this small child. The generosity of her innocent love. Greer described this experience as as life-changing for her. What was she experiencing? Something she tried to put away, had counseled other women to put away for years. What was it? A maternal love. You see, when your worldview doesn't match reality, you can either question your worldview, your outlook on life, or you can question reality. We live in a culture that has not only questioned reality, but has tried to utterly change reality to fit into the mold of one's personal opinions and worldview. But like me trying to fit into size 32 pants recently, it won't work. In our current culture, the idol that we have set up for young women to worship is the idol of independence. Since independence is considered the ideal form of womanhood, it is therefore a culture that increasingly devalues the role of mothers. Motherhood is seen by many as constraining, oppressive, demeaning, a humdrum kind of life. Motherhood is shackling, and we encourage our young women to throw off the shackles of restraint. And it most certainly is not viewed as a vocation or as a high calling for a young woman to aspire to. In fact, motherhood is so discouraged in our day and age that every year in Canada, 64,000 abortions are performed in hospitals and clinics across the country. We so discourage our young women from seeing themselves as mothers that we are willing to place immense pressure on them to terminate their pregnancies if it gets in the way of their true God, independence. I'm not saying that's the only reason women have terminated their pregnancies, but it's one. And yet, a woman like Jermaine Greer, a radical feminist, blatant repudiator of motherhood, suddenly finds herself enraptured. And caught up in the love of a child and experiencing the longing of a mother. Greer tried to change reality, but in the end, it was a fool's game. Because you see, the biblical view of motherhood is a high calling, is a high calling. It is an immense privilege to be a mother in God's eyes. God's view of motherhood is utterly out of step with the spirit of our age, and yet we desperately need to recover it. I'd like to make three observations about moms, godly mothers, in this text. Number one, godly mothers nurture, or gently nurture. They gently nurture. Number two, godly mothers ache for the best. And number three, godly mothers share soul food. All right. Paul tells the Thessalonians the way that he behaved as a mother to them, and in doing so, he creates a very helpful depiction of the unique qualities of godly mothers. Listen to the motherly language again, right? Gentle, like a nursing mother, affectionate desire. So what what is he saying in all these, these words? The first idea that emerges in these verses is one of gentle nurture. Paul acted like a mother toward the Thessalonians, and that meant he was a gentle nurturer. Paul illustrates this using the most endearing image of motherhood, a nursing mother caring for her small infant children. To nurture literally means to suckle or to nourish. It's the quintessential image of a mother. The strength of a mother is her quality to gently nurture those under her care. Here's what Barbara Hughes says in her book on mothering, uh, on, on womanhood. The Bible teaches that all women are created to mother, to nurture life. Mothering is more than mere mechanics. It's not just biology, that you can conceive a child. its not what she's saying. It is far more profound. I believe that whether or not a woman has children, she is called to embrace the discipline of nurturing. So if that helps you to think of mother as a nurturer, put that in your mind as you hear a nurturer. This is such an important quality. It has huge implications for both our homes and our churches. Our children need nurture. They need a mother's hand. When a mother's gentle nurturing touch is missing, our homes and our society will surely degenerate. I was asking my my daughter yesterday, hey, sweetie, when you get hurt, who do you want to go see, mom or dad? She's like, well, mom. You know, really quickly, she said and I was like, yes, you illustrated my sermon point perfectly. <laughs> but why? It's because mom, you know, she kisses the Band-Aid when she puts it on. She's, she's just far more nurturing than I am, right? I'm like, get over it, kid, you know. I, I don't know if I say that, but there's just something about a mother. You run to your mother when you're hurt, Right? Another example of this uh, was these two ladies who came to visit us a couple weeks ago, Betsy and Marlena from the Children's Haven. So these are two ladies. who, uh, One of them lives in Mexico, one in Texas, and they support this refuge for children. And I was just blown away by these ladies. Like, talk about strong, fierce nurturers. They just so have given up their life to care for 59 of these children, to experience the heartache of it when they go astray but to love them, to nurture them. And they were not weak women. They were strong. You would hold them up in society and go, that is someone to aspire to. So to my sisters, especially my younger sisters, are you running away or embracing the call to nurture others? Are you embracing that call or running away from it? Number two, godly mothers ache for the best. Look at verse eight again. So Paul says that he was affectionately desirous of of these people in this church. This term affectionate desire conveys an extremely strong emotion. It speaks of a mother's longing love for their child. It's actually used in some cases in the death of a child. And her mother aches for her child. Paul felt this way about the Thessalonians. He wanted to be with them. He wanted their best. Just as a mother wants all the best for her children, women who embrace God's call of motherhood will find themselves more naturally inclined, I think, than men or fathers, to ache for their children's best interests. This is a quality of God himself, a reminder of God's imprint on the soul of mothers. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. I have a motherly longing for you people. Uh, I just can't think of a better description than my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother, we just laid her to rest this last Monday. She was 94. She uh, gave me this Bible. And uh, we had a wonderful time just uh, talking about her life. And uh, one of the things that really emerged and was no surprise to any of us was um, how much she uh, longed for her children and she would uh, express this through letter writing. So my grandmother, as long as I knew her, she lost her voice. She had some condition where her voice was gone. And so as long as I knew her, she spoke in a whisper. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? You know, that was the way that my grandmother talked. And so she really gave herself to writing and to writing letters. And uh, as we got together with all the the grandchildren and the cousins, and it's mostly grandsons too, you know, some of my cousins are like these big dudes, right? And um, grandma wrote letters to all of us, grandsons, and they all had a common theme. How are you doing with Jesus? How are you doing in life? I'm praying for you. I want to share a word from the Bible with you. You know, in half the time when we were growing up, we'd roll our eyes. Oh, another letter from grandma. Right? I know what she's going to say. Ugh. But you know, the legacy of that had a huge impact. I looked over at my cousins, these big guys, as they're watching about her life and listening, weeping. Big, burly, you know, he's a correction. My cousin Brad like a corrections officer. Big dude, weeping for his grandmother, just so appreciated, her love, her longing love for him. A word of warning uh, to mothers on this point. Because of this affectionate desire, this ache, this yearning for your children's best, mothers are more tempted, I think, than fathers' to make idols of their children. So fathers are more tempted to domineer and to abandon their children, but mothers have to guard against making their children everything in their life. They're not everything. They're not your whole existence. They're a part of it, but God sits on the throne. Number three, godly mothers share soul food. He says, we were ready to share with you Not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our own souls, because you have become very dear to us. Godly mothers share soul food. What does that mean? It means mothers are more naturally inclined to share spiritual food with deeper relational connection. A nursing mother has the natural and distinct ability to nurse her child with her own body, a quality that can never be duplicated by fathers. Praise the Lord. Now, let me just be clear that when I say mothers are sharing food, I am not suggesting that moms do all the cooking here, okay? Not saying that. Dads need to be in the kitchen. (laughs) Absolutely. But godly mothers are called, there, there is a motherly instinct that is a feeding instinct that is natural more for mothers Godly mothers are called to feed their children not only physical food but spiritual food, but they do it with a deep connection and a greater sense of relational bond. A godly mother or motherly figure is diligent to share the wonders of the gospel and her life with others. Paul shared the gospel and his own life. This is a motherly quality. Mothers share more than proclaim. They not only share the gospel, but their own selves I would be very surprised to find out that Bible tracts were the invention of a woman. It is an utterly male idea. (laughs) Here, we're going to write down what Jesus did and just hand it out to people, and we don't even have to get to know them. It's very efficient. Get the job done. That's not the maternal approach. It would be very different. I want to get, can I share Jesus with you? Can I share my life with you? I want to get to know you. Far more naturally for women, and we can learn from that, guys. Mothers share the gospel with their kids by feeding them the scriptures. A great example of this is the mother and grandmother of Timothy, Paul's apprentice. Here's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 3 I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. With that knowledge, Paul, two chapters later, He encourages Timothy, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Who is that? His mother, his grandmother. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy learned the scriptures, the word of God, from his mother and his grandmother. Timothy could be strong in faith because he knew the women who taught him. He knew them deeply. God has designed the motherly role, unique and special, in a way that he hasn't designed fathers. Ladies, little children look to you as their moms, not their dads. They look at you as mothers. They're looking to you for nurture, for affection, to be fed the Word of God. Are you putting the Word of God in front of them? Are you lecturing them? There's two different things there. I've seen a lot of parents before, they, well, I'm trying to teach them all these biblical principles, and they just, like, they roll their eyes. They don't want any of it. Well, are you lecturing? Or are you just digging into the Word with them and letting it do the work for you? It's far better, it's far more fruitful. Timothy knew the scriptures from his grandmother and his mother. Now, let me point out an irony in this text before we move on to fathers. Let's point out the fact that Paul is a single man acting like a mom, which is funny. Yet, what is so fascinating about this passage is that Paul is very clear that he is acting like a mom, okay, and not like a dad. So he doesn't flatten the distinction between these two things. So, but listen, if you're a man here today, don't think as you hear about moms and what they're a little more naturally inclined to be like, don't hear that as an excuse to not be gentle or nurturing with your children or affectionate. Dads need to be that way when it calls for it. Paul didn't become a mother, but he adopted a motherly approach when it warranted it. So you'll need to be tender and nurturing with your kids, dads. You will need to be especially with your daughters, I am finding. (laughs) And this, again, is something we see in God, our Father. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to call God mother. But God does mother his people often. Isaiah 66, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, "'Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river.'" and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and I, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That's God talking. He adopts a motherly approach. Dads, you'll have to do the same at times. And I would venture to say, moms, probably have to get tough <laughs> sometimes. Absolutely. There's room for all that. Yet we wonder, how is a father different than a mother? What is unique and special about his role? Though our culture despises motherhood, it does not necessarily despise individual moms. In fact, I think we think very highly of individual moms. But it's the concept of motherhood that we don't encourage. But when it comes to fatherhood, we have the opposite problem. Fatherhood as a concept, is not despised, we have a culture that's actually starving for it. But individual dads, there's a lot more baggage, a lot more hurt and deep wounds. Our culture suffers from a deep father hunger because fatherlessness is currently an epidemic problem. I'm going to read you some stats from the National Father Initiative. These are stats about father-deprived children, children who don't have dad around. These kids are 72% of all teenage murders. They're 60% of rapists. They're 70% of kids incarcerated. They're twice as likely to quit school. They're 11 times more likely to be violent. Three of four teen suicides are these kids. 75%. 80% of the adolescents in psychiatric hospitals. 90% of runaways. Oh, we need dads. (laughs) We have a culture that is screaming out. And this is... Only one kind of fatherlessness. Doug Wilson says in his book, Father Hunger, he says, we have the obvious problem of fatherlessness when the fathers are long gone, but we also have the problem of fatherlessness when the fathers are present but not accounted for. If fathers are on the premises but don't know what is expected of them, we have another kind of fatherlessness. And look, by and large, dads, we don't have great pop culture icons and models of fatherhood, do we? Whether we're talking about the irresponsible, inept, though sometimes funny, Homer Simpson, or the various dads on Modern Family, or even the weak willed Papa Bear from the Berenstein Bears children's series. Is it, isn't he? Oh, what's going on? Oh, we're doing family devotionals? Oh, I guess Mom, Mom is taking care of that. I'll well, just go outside and work in the shop. If children learn by imitation, and these are the images of fatherhood they're aspiring to, what does the future look like? We are what we worship. We are what we worship. If we want to see our social ills change, we will need a revival of good fathers in the culture. If we're going to see many good fathers in the culture, it begins with godly fathers in the church. You can just forget the culture changing if there's not revival in the church. You can just forget it. It ain't going to happen. We need godly fathers for the church and for their homes. Raising godly children who will be godly fathers for the next generation. And if we're to have godly fathers, we have to look to God the Father and his word for the right picture. So here we go. Verse 9. For remember... You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day. Notice how he's changing the language here. Paul is. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He's not sharing it anymore, is he? He's proclaiming it. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Can I get an amen from the dads? <laughs> Three observations about the role of a father from this text. Number one, fathers are workers. Number two, fathers exercise spiritual authority and Three, fathers are builders. Verse 9, Paul says that he labored and toiled. He worked night and day. And he has, this is a new section of thought for Paul. He's working night and day. He's he's thinking like a dad now. Paul is a godly spiritual dad, and he gave the Thessalonians an example to imitate, a hardworking laborer. Paul worked hard making tents on top of his responsibility as an apostle. That's because a father is a worker. That is to say, he is a provider for his family. A failure to take on this responsibility is very serious. Here's what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Now, in that context, it's talking about children taking care of their parents, actually, but it goes, it goes both ways. We have a responsibility to our families. Fathers have a special responsibility to work and provide. Providing for one's family is part of God's design for the man in the garden, since the garden. Adam was given charge to work the garden and to protect it. This is part of God's design for men. Fathers are workers. Now, look. I know there's seasons where dads are out of jobs and and, like there's exceptions at times. And there are seasons where you got to work it out. Mom's making more money. Get those things. But what's the long-term view of who you are as a dad? What's the long-term view? Fathers are specially equipped to work and provide. This was very, very uh, vividly reminded to me from my own dad. Uh, My own dad... He, uh, he lost his job one Christmas, and uh, we were young. And, uh, you know, it's Christmas time, right? <laughs> Lose your job. What are you going to do? What, what was my dad going to do? Was he going to wallow? Was he going to just go, oh, man, I'm not a man? No, he didn't do that. He probably would have loved to get a great job. But do you know what he did? He got whatever job he could. He got a paper route. He got a bunch of paper roots and tried to make as much money he could that Christmas for us. And he dragged us boys with him, right? We are walking through the snow. It was heavy snow that year, of course, and we're delivering these papers. And I hated every second of it. But I learned something from my dad. I learned how to work. And you know what? When it was all done, I loved him for it. I loved him for it. That he was willing to do that For us, He was willing to do whatever he could to provide for us. That example was what stuck with me. Dads, you're working? You're working to do whatever you can? It may look different for everybody, but look, are you working? Are you trying your best? This doesn't apply to people who are infirm and can't work but want to. That's different. But for those who are able-bodied and are able to work but just won't, We have to drop our pride, dads, sometimes, and do what's necessary. Number two, godly fathers exercise spiritual authority. This is kind of, the next two points are going to be two sides to the same coin, okay? So here's the first side. Godly fathers exercise spiritual authority. Paul says he proclaimed the gospel, and he encouraged and charged and exhorted this church like a father does. So now we have the language of proclamation rather than sharing. Proclamation speaks to authority. Dads have a unique authority of their children. Now, you dads are going to like that word, right? I'm the boss. i got the authority. Listen to me. But let's be really clear about what kind of an authority we're going to talk about here. This is not just, I'm in charge, you do whatever I want. Far from it. There are two kinds of authority. The authority of office. That's like having your name on a checkbook. The authority of office. Second, there is spiritual authority. That's like having money in the bank. Children are called to honor their parents regardless of how perfect or imperfect their parents are. Parents, mothers, and fathers carry an authority of office that their children are commanded to respect, regardless of if they're good or bad dads. They're to honor them. However, it is not uncommon for dads to think that having their name on the checkbook is the same as having money in the bank with their children. If you have made no relational, emotional, spiritual investments in the life of your child, you should not be surprised when the check doesn't clear. It does you no good when your child is going astray to say, well, my name is on the checkbook. I'm their father. They should listen to me. But the account is reading insufficient funds. The authority of office only goes so far. What Paul models for us in this letter is a spiritual, relational authority. This is why Paul warns fathers in Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is saying, don't abuse your authority, dads. You have it, don't abuse it. It's a good and dangerous thing. Deuteronomy fourteen twenty one. we get a funny law. It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk weird. the Bible's weird sometimes, isn't it? Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Wow. What? Okay. What's the principle? You shall not take something that's given for life, milk, and use it as an instrument of death. Fathers were given authority, not for the tearing down, but for the building up. Your authority is for life, not for death. Jesus demonstrated this kind of authority at the Last Supper. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I have authority. But you know when he said that? Immediately after he washed their feet. That is authority. Dads. That is authority. You get under your kids, and you bring them up. You get under them, And you bring them up. Which leads to our next point. Fathers are builders. Fathers are builders. Watch how Paul builds up the Thessalonians the way a father does. He exhorts them. He encourages them. He charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. All of these words are in a context of moral instruction. Dads, you have a responsibility to teach your children the word of God. And to... Exhort them in it, encourage them in it, charge them. Note the progression of these three words. First comes exhortation. So an example would be, be strong and courageous. That's an exhortation. Be strong and courageous, my boy. Followed by encouragement. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm here for you. I'm cheering you on. And then a charge. Go and do it. Do it. You can do it. That is the way God deals with us. He exhorts us to get up. He encourages us for the task. And then he charges us to move forward. This is how a father builds up his children. I want to camp on encouragement for a moment. I think this is perhaps one of the most missing ingredients for many of us dads. Although there might be some dads here who are great encouragers. And in that case, you might have to be better instructors and warners and guarders of your children. But I think many of us dads struggle with the encouragement part. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, don't discourage your children. Through criticism favoritism, domineering them, irritability, frustration, or just not saying anything to them. Encourage them. Watch how they light up. It doesn't mean flatter them. Tell them things about them that are true, that you see in them, things that will actually hit a nerve. Listen to how God the Father... Does this with his son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus' baptism. It's an important day in Jesus' life. The Father was there. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. That's my boy. I am so pleased with him. Can you hear the encouragement of a father? In those words, a perfect heavenly father, a father who loves his son and any who are in his son. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, God the Father looks at you like that. He says, I'm well pleased with you. Because he sees you through the lens of his son, Jesus. In Christ, you and I have a heavenly father who looks at us with kindness and says, I am well pleased. Look, I I don't know what your father was like. Maybe he was a horrible father. I don't know what kind of father you are, dads. But... In Christ, you have the Father you've always wanted. And you have an example that you need for yourself. Let God the Father encourage you today and then go and turn and do that to your kids. Do that to your kids. Some of you may need to say sorry to them. Have you ever done that? Say sorry to them, the way you've treated their mom, the way you've treated them, your yelling, your irritability. Watch how they open up like a flower when you do that. It's amazing. A note here for single moms. Find father figures for your kids. If you're part of the church here, that's a great start. There are a lot of great dads in this place, a lot of great moms as well. That we see. And remember Timothy. Timothy, as far as we know, didn't really have a godly father figure. But he had Paul. Guys, like, I gotta be honest with you. It really gets old for me. Seeing how many women serve with kids ministry. And how many guys don't think it's their responsibility. Really aggravating. Let's be totally honest. Dads. See how many young boys we have in our church who need father figures? So many. They need you. Think about it. Listen, God has designed mothers and fathers differently for a reason. One is not better than the other. They are complementary roles designed for the flourishing of your family and of the church and of society. Part of being made in God's image is to be made male and female. God calls us then to embrace that design of mothering and fathering because our children need godly moms and dads. Our churches need godly men and women to be spiritual nurturers and builders of the next generation. Let's end with the gospel. We have to remember that our mothering, our fathering are merely a reflection of the outworking of the gospel. We are here to remember that God our Father sent his Son to take the punishment of sin for us. And to adopt us as his children. This is the gospel. That's the gospel. That he has made available to all people. As image bearers of God, we are then given the privilege to be parents to others. Imaging and illustrating the gospel of the Father and the Son. So here's what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 14. Here's his his prayer for the church. For this reason, for this, this awesome gospel that we love, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled, Lord, by your kind authority. God, we are caught up in mystery at how you have designed us equal and yet different. It's a reflection of who you are, Lord, as God our Father, God our Son, God our Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your great love for us. I pray for the moms here today who need your grace, who need to be strengthened. Would you strengthen them, Lord? Lord, for those who are longing for children, would you give them the desires of their heart, Father? God, for dads here who need repentance, I pray that you would help them know that they can come to you and you are kind to them. Father, I pray you would charge and encourage the dads, to be great dads for their kids. God, build up our church. Build up our homes. Build up our city. May people come and see that you truly are God through the lives that we live. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.